0: Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And so Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 it's found on page 855 in the pew rack in front of you, the pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we certainly love for you to just take that Bible that you see in front of you and that would be our gift to you. We trust that God will use that profitably in your life. And I'm excited this morning to be here with you and Luke as uh, we begin a, a new series in the Gospel of Luke. And I trust God will bless us mightily as we consider the life and the, the words and the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves here this morning in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word of God had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Father, we thank You now that we could come and to hear from You and to set our hearts and our minds upon Your Word as Your church gathers here together. We ask that You would speak to us in a mighty way that we believe that this is the Word of God in which we consider this morning. We trust that You have... Uh, a great plan for us that you intend to do a work in our hearts that you would draw us closer to you that you would increase our faith and delight in your word that you would perhaps speak to those here who do not know you as their god and jesus as their savior and so come even now father and encourage us and uh, confront us if that needs to happen and you would speak to us through your spirit we ask for this holy spirit uh, to come now that we might know You better and follow Jesus more closely, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the USA Today once conducted an interview a couple years ago, maybe about a decade ago, with a a media personality and a self-made billionaire. Uh, He happens to be the largest landowner in America. You would know his name if I told you. Maybe you can guess. um, he's a very, very wealthy man, very prominent man on television all the time. And, and he spoke about his wealth in this interview and talked about how he wants to use all that he's accumulated in order to promote peace and understanding and harmony in the world. And as he began to talk about you know peace and, and harmony, the interviewer began to ask him about his faith, about his religion, specifically his understanding of salvation. That's kind of how the interview ended with these words from him. I quote him. Almost every religion talks about a Savior coming. By the way, that's incorrect, just for clarity. Most religions don't talk about a Savior coming. There is one that I know of. I would commend it to you. It's called Christianity. But anyways, almost every religion talks about a Savior coming. But when you look in the mirror in the morning, when you are putting on your lipstick or shaving, you are looking at the Savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. I think this, this sentiment that he uh, explains here is increasingly becoming the sentiment in the secular West, don't you think? Not that people probably wouldn't verbalize it so boldly as this man um, has, but, but we're encouraged and we're, 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 we see this over and over again that people are taught to look to yourself. I, I think perhaps many people believe in God, um, but... Belief in God is totally irrelevant to our lives. So 99% of our life is conducted without any reference to God. And then when things become difficult and tough, then maybe we would call out to God for help. But mostly we live life with without God because we simply don't feel like we need God. And this seems to be the, the what's taking place in our land and throughout the Western world. It's almost as if we we're saying to God, thank you very much, but I'll take it from here. I got it under control. And see, religion is increasingly becoming, uh, increasingly evaluated by our personal needs. And so we think, well, if I need God, or if you need God, then you should go out and find a God, and and that will be good for you, and I'll encourage you to do that. But if I don't need God, then there's no reason for me to actually go looking for one. Um, And and we understand a faith in the sense of, do I have a need for Him? Well, if you have that mentality, you can understand the more prosperous we become, the more healthy we become, the, the more secure we become, well, the less we feel a need for God, right? The less we, we feel a need for God to take care of us and to, to meet our needs. And, and if we don't need Him, then, then why in the world will we want to follow Him? Why in the world will we want to obey Him and have Him tell us what to do and even to sacrifice for Him? In fact, this man who was interviewed said, I just do what I do because I believe it's Right. It's this is the idea there's no authority over me. I'm my own authority, and I decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, and that's how I am. Well, I wonder, what, what if religion was not based upon felt personal needs? What if religion was actually based upon what it used to be based on, truth? What, what, if, religion, what if we believe in God, not because He's helpful, but because He actually exists? What if, I mean, don't misunderstand me. I think God is helpful. I think he's unimaginably helpful. But that's not why we are called to trust in him. We're called to trust in God because he is true, that he is there. He has made us and he continues to work and we will be called into account to him. God, if he exists, is, is massively important in all realities and has all authority. And so Luke, this gospel is written to persuade us of this. Not necessarily that God is helpful, though I think we'll see that in the Gospel of Luke. But I think Luke is ultimately trying to persuade us that God exists. That God is true. In fact, notice verse 4. Luke says, I'm writing this to you, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I want you to be certain about the things that you have heard about. As I mentioned today, we, we start a study through the Gospel of Luke. And this is not for the faint of heart. Luke is a long book. In fact, Luke is the longest Gospel. In fact, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. It is 80 verses longer than the Gospel of Matthew and I intend, God willing, to preach every verse of it. All 1,151 glorious verses. So this, this is going to take us a while. We're not going to get done next month, all right? It's probably going to take us, to be honest, uh, a couple years. I think um, I, my working through it and outlining the gospel of Luke, I'm I'm guessing hundred sermons, in, which is much less than John MacArthur's 283 sermons. In preaching through the Gospel of Luke, so we're going to spend maybe a couple years in Luke. We'll take breaks as we go along, but but please please don't be discouraged at that. I think this incredible opportunity to devote yourself to this incredible book for the next two years. In fact, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's about Jesus, right? <laughs> And so he, he, it's all through here. And so when we're going to devote ourselves, we're devoting ourselves to Jesus. We're going to walk with Jesus, almost like we are one of his disciples, and listen to Jesus and watch what he does and and see how he interacts with people, that we might understand him or that we might follow him more faithfully and fall in love with him more closely. It will take you about two hours if you sat down and read the Gospel Luke. In other words, you could you could if you spend maybe eight nine minutes a day. You could read this gospel every two weeks, which means by the time we're done with this, you could, you could read it 50 times, right? You could become a, a, an expert in this book, and we could meditate on it and read it and memorize it and devote our period, this period of life that God has brought us to, to this book. I, I just turned 40 a couple weeks ago, and, and I'm going to look at my early 40s. This is my gift to myself. It's going to be the Luke years. And so, so when, I'm, you know, when I'm old, a couple of decades now, I'm going to look back to my early 40s. Oh yeah, those were the years in which we focused on Christ through Luke. And I'm excited to do so. In fact, if you love Jesus' teaching, you're going to love Luke. Almost half of the Gospel of Luke is devoted to the words of Jesus, 586 verses. But if you love Jesus in action well, you're going to love the Gospel of Luke. Because the other half is devoted to the the action of Jesus, the, the works of Jesus, this beautiful balance between the words and the works of Jesus as Luke displays him for us. And my ambition and hope, and I hope it is yours as well, is that we, and when studying Christ, that we will, we will go hard after Jesus. We, we won't tinker with this faith that we call Christianity. We won't be content just to creep along and just to exist in our faith but it will light a fire in us, a, a great love and passion for our Savior that we will pursue him with great vigor. I'm also excited because of, of all the books in the Bible, I would say, at least in this day, uh, that Luke is my favorite book in all of scripture. It has certainly had the most profound impact on me in my previous studies of the gospel, of Luke. And specifically, I don't think any book has caused me to grow my love for Jesus and my love for other people than the Gospel of Luke. And I hope it has an equally profound impact upon you. So today, we're just going to set out to consider the prologue of Luke, these first four verses. What I hope to do is, is to consider uh, why Luke wrote this Gospel, and not just why, but, but how he wrote it. And then once we do that, once we work our way, we're going to look at some other places in the Bible where Luke is mentioned. And we can learn more about the man who wrote this book. And I think it will help us to understand, if we understand who he is, it's going to help us understand the book which he wrote. And so first of all, consider with me uh, Luke the historian. I think he presents himself as such here in verse 3 when he says, "...it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." And so Luke is writing this gospel, the purpose there in verse 4 is that we might have certainty of the events of Christ, the words of Christ. It is written for us that we might have an accuracy as to what Jesus actually said and what he did, which would of course result in greater confidence in Jesus. You notice that Luke wrote this book to a man named Theophilus. He was the recipient of this gospel. In fact, he will also be the recipient of Luke's other book in the Bible, the book of Acts, both written to Theophilus. We're not quite sure who he is. We don't have any information about him outside of Scripture, but we can glean a couple things from these two verses. First of all, we notice that he is called the most excellent Theophilus, which means he is most likely a Roman official. Luke will write in 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 his sequel, the book of Acts, he'll refer to the governor of Judea as the most excellent Felix. And then in Acts 26, Felix is is succeeded by the most excellent Festus. And so I think we could be safe to conclude that this man, Theophilus, is a Gentile who has um, some important position in the Roman government. There's also another thing that we can learn about him. He's been taught about Jesus. You see that in verse 4. He says that you may have certainty concerning the, the things you have been taught. And so he's already heard about Jesus. He's uh, learned about Him. Uh, maybe he's a Christian. We don't know. Maybe he's interested. Maybe he, he wants to see if these things that I'm hearing, are they true? Did Jesus really walk on water and cast out demons? Did He really feed 5,000 and heal the sick? Did He really claim to be God? Did He really offer salvation? Did he really rise from the dead? I want to know. I want to know. Did this happen? Is this what he said? And so he's been taught and he seems to have this interest. By the way, if he's a Roman official, he has a lot to lose here. He could lose his job. Being a Christian in this day is not popular. It won't be popular for 300 years in the Roman government. He could lose his power. He could lose his wealth. Perhaps even his freedom or his life. And so I think he's probably wrestling with this. Do I... Want to belong to Jesus. Do I believe it? Struggling maybe with doubt. I don't know if you ever struggle with doubt. Ever struggle to, to believe what Christ has, has said and done. In fact, you can't really see it in verse 4, but in the Greek, the, the words are rearranged. So that the end of verse 4, he, he concludes verse 4 with this word, the word certain. If we had maybe a wooden translation, he would say, I've written this to you, Theophilus, because I know you've been taught things and I want you to be certain. I want you to be sure. That's why Luke is written, to give us that confidence, that assurance in who Jesus is. I think we need this because sometimes we doubt. We, we struggle with doubt. Of course, I think most of the time we don't. If you follow Christ, you probably live a quite, quite long time without struggling with doubt. But every once in a while, if you're anything like me, something comes in my mind. Uh, one uh, theologian or writer put it, a mosquito buzzes around my faith. A mosquito of doubt. His nagging questions uh, whine in our ears. You ever wonder, is, is, is the Bible really true? Is God really there? Did he really rise from the dead? Will I really go to heaven when I die? See, Luke is written to help us be certain, right? Sometimes we doubt. We still believe in Jesus, of course, but how how can I be sure? Well, that's what Luke is for. We need this in order to be certain that the knowledge of that Jesus has died and has risen. We need evidence that he is truly the son of God. We need to know that he suffered for us and bore God's wrath and, and, and did all this work for us. We need to know that we might have eternal life through him by faith alone. And Luke is written to, to strengthen our faith. It's why he wrote this gospel. I want you to be certain about these things. In fact, I think Luke is a perfect, perfect man for this job. A perfect man for a doubter or a, or a skeptic. One reason he's perfect is he wasn't a Jew. In fact, the book of Luke and the book of Acts will be the only books of the Bible that we know of that are written by a Gentile. And what that means is Luke didn't grow up waiting for the Messiah. He didn't grow up worshiping God. He didn't grow up reading the Scriptures. In in other words, he's not predisposed to believe this to be true. And so Luke is written from a Gentile to a Gentile. And you'll see this through Luke's Gospel. It'll be different than the other Gospels because it has that mentality. For instance, Matthew will trace back Jesus to, to Abraham, the father of the Jews. Well, that's not very important to Luke. Luke's going to trace Jesus all the way back to Adam, the father of all humanity, because he's not a Jew and he's not writing to a Jew. I don't know if you're a Gentile, but if you're a Gentile like me, you're going to love Luke. Because it's written to people like you. This man is, is perfect for this job. He's also educated. He's extremely brilliant. We know that he's a physician. Uh, he's a, an intelligent man. Even secular scholars who have studied Luke's Greek are amazed at, at the literary quality of Luke's writing. It's almost unprecedented. He was a brilliant man. And therefore, I don't think he's easily duped into believing these things. And so he's the one that Theophilus chooses. Write me an account. Write me a gospel, he says. I want to learn about Jesus. Which I think is a cool way to spend your money. Right? Because this man obviously has a lot of money and, and this is going to be an expensive enterprise. And, and you think, what do I want to do with all this money I have? Right? He could buy a new camel, I guess. He could go on vacation. He could upgrade his house. Right? He says, I want to find out about Jesus. I need to find someone to look into Jesus. And he makes this massive financial sacrifice for doing so. And you and I benefit from that. We get two books of the Bible out of it. And this man commits to this. In fact, you know, Luke will be the largest contributor to the New Testament. He would write more than John, who wrote five books of the Bible. He would write more than Paul, who wrote 13 books of the Bible. He has written most of the New Testament. And now, 2,000 years later, because this man, Theophilus, said, I want to find out about Jesus. I'm going to to fork over some money in order for this to happen. Hundreds of millions of people who know about Jesus, who love Jesus, know Him better and know the church. An incredible way to spend your life. I don't think he regrets it at all. I want to just commend Theophilus to you for a moment. What a wonderful steward he is. Many have been served by him. We'll be served by him in the coming months. In fact, I want to commend you as well. Not just Theophilus, but last week we... We did a little bit of stewardship, didn't we, as we collected an offering for the persecuted church. We collected $9,088 last week. That's going to buy 3,029 Bibles. And so what that means is that there are people right now today who don't have the Scripture. And, and maybe have never seen the Scripture. And they've heard stories about Jesus. They've, they've heard people talk to Him. But to have the Bible in their hand is, is, is a is a dream. And because Hamilton Baptist Church sacrificed, hundreds, thousands of people are going to get the word of God. Can you imagine what kind of impact? I mean, we won't know that until heaven, will we? But one day, I think God's going to show us. Remember when you gave? I'm so proud of this church and the sacrifice that we give. And we're going into December and we're going to take up a Lottie Moon Christmas offering the whole month of December as we support missions. And we send our 5,000 missionaries to the Southern Baptist Convention to the darkest, most unreached places in the world. And I'm excited to give to that. And I know God is going to use that stewardship. And God used Theophilus to spend his money to get this accurate account. In fact, Luke tells us how he went about his report. You notice verse 3. He says, "...it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past." And so he says, "...I'm not being careless about this. I follow these things. I follow them closely or carefully, as some translations say." In fact, he says, "...I follow them from some time past." Or one translation says, "...from the beginning or from the start." And I think what Luke is referring to is that he's going to take us all the way back to the birth of Jesus and even before the birth of Jesus, the birth of John. In fact, even before the birth of John, he's going to begin to talk to us about how God was preparing for the coming of the Lord. It's almost like this, this uh, adventure of trying to find the headwaters of the river in order to explore it back down. And Luke says, I'm going to focus on this. I want to follow these things closely. I'm going to research it and I'm going to, to write it that you might have an accurate account. And so this is what Luke is endeavoring to do, to do so accurately and closely. Of course, I praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit was involved, because it's just not a man doing research and writing. The Holy Spirit is guiding him that we might have the Word of God today. In fact, Luke has proven true to be over and over. Unlike any other bio, uh, gospel account, Luke gives us incredible detail to the historical happenings at the time of his writing. And many people have read Luke with a suspicious eye and found fault with it, and that's not true, and that's not true, and that didn't happen. But invariably, almost every time someone criticizes this book, they find out, as archaeologists and sociologists continue to do their research, that Luke is right. He's an incredibly accurate historian. One non-Christian rabbi uh, from long ago thought Luke to be the finest historian in the ancient world. I don't know if you love like little details in, in these historical accounts, but if you do, you're going to love Luke. Because Luke has his eye for details. One commentator said, If Mark is a storyteller and John a philosopher, then Luke was an investigative reporter. And he's going to give us this. In fact, he's going to do so orderly. You see that there as we read on in verse 3? To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And orderly, what Luke is going to do is he's going to arrange the, the events of Jesus in, in a very chronological order. And most gospel writers aren't that interested in chronology. They arrange the events of Jesus' life more thematically. But Luke is going to give us this chronological order. In fact, he starts here and you can really divide Luke into four sections. Uh, the first section, the coming savior. He, he goes from chapter one all the way through chapter four and verse 13 as he tells us about the birth of John and the birth of Jesus and even the boyhood of Jesus and Jesus preparing for ministry. And then in chapter four, verse 14, Jesus moves up the Galilee. They call this the Galilean springtime. It goes all the way to Luke nine, verse 50. In fact, you see what happened was that John, Jesus' cousin, began, was arrested by Herod. And at this time, Luke, uh, excuse me, Jesus withdrew into Galilee in order to get away from the persecution and the hardship that he saw that had happened upon John. In fact, the, the gospel of John will tell us about Jesus' early Judah ministry. But he would minister for a little while in Judah and then withdraw up to Galilee, the northern part of Israel where he was from. And it's called the Galilean springtime because everything was going well for Jesus. It was springtime for him. It was increasingly growing in popularity. People loved him. And he is walking around uh, working in power and great compassion. And you're going to see in those passages the power of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. And I think both are important. You just don't want him to be compassionate and not powerful. Because you can't do anything about it. You don't want him to be simply powerful and not compassionate because you don't know what you're going to get out of that power. And so we see Jesus as this powerful, compassionate, man. And then we read in Luke 9 and verse 51, which is kind of the hinge verse in the Gospel of Luke. And it says something to the effect that, that Jesus' time for draw, uh, being drawn up was near, so he set his face for Jerusalem. And from Luke 9 verse 51 all the way through 19 and chapter uh, verse 27, is called the Travel Narratives. And it's Jesus walking, leaving Galilee, headed to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. His face was set for it. He was committed to go and to die for our sins. You'll find in those ten chapters of Luke, the travel narratives, two, two kind of themes, two realities happening. One, there's increasing opposition to Jesus at this time. People begin to oppose him, um, come against him. And he begins to call people out for sin. He talks a lot about sin. But when Jesus talks about sin, it, it's not usually how you and I talk about sin. right? We say, oh yeah, I know all about sin so-and-so did this to me, right? We think about sin in the context of being victims. Or we say, oh yeah, I know all about sin. Those people over there, they're gross. They do sinful acts. But what Jesus is going to focus on, you know the sinners He's going to focus on? Religious conservatives. Those are the ones He's going to identify as the sinners. The religious hypocrites of the day. I think it would be challenging for us. I think he's gonna motivate us and encourage us and this opposition grows against Jesus. And so what Jesus begins to do during the travel narratives, the reason why we call it the narratives, is he begins to teach his disciples what it's like to follow him in the midst of opposition. As he heads to the cross, he teaches them the way of the cross. What it's like to be a disciple. And so he says things like, you need to count the cost if you're going to follow me. You need to deny yourself if you're going to follow me. You need not to be like the Pharisees. You need to find the narrow door. And he begins to instruct them. And we find a much greater focus on the teaching of Jesus. I don't know if you like parables. But if you do, you're going to love Luke. There are 17 parables in the Gospel of Luke. 15 of them are unique to this Gospel, not found anywhere else. And he begins to teach his disciples. And then the last section of Luke's Gospel, the works of redemption, starts in chapter 19 and verse 28 all the way through the end in which we see the passion events of Jesus. We see that Jesus died and rose again. Maybe you're here this morning you're not a Christian. The Bible tells us that all these works and all these words of Jesus, all that he's doing has one Final purpose. He tells us in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He's come to save you, to save me. That's why He died. Because we need a Savior we need someone to pay for our sin, to pay for our rebellion against God, to pay for our ignoring God. And He would do so on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for me and for all who would trust in Him. And then three days later, He would show that God has accepted that penalty by raising Him from the dead. He is seeking the lost in order to save the lost. All of us are lost, and Jesus has come to do that work to save us through His death and His resurrection. And the Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. That's why He's come. And Luke will drive that home for us. He has come to save us. Well, so he is. this is how Luke orders his gospel, a very orderly account. Of course, Luke never saw these events. He didn't travel with Jesus. He came to faith late in life. And so we wonder, how did he get all his sources, all this information? Well, he tells us in verse 1, He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, he says there's others who have written about Jesus. I'm not the first one. We know Luke is either the second or the third gospel. We're not exactly sure. But others have written about Jesus, maybe some writings that have been lost to us. And he says, others have written, I'm, I'm going to draw from them. And then in verse 2, he tells us he's going to do his own research, as he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. In other words, Luke went and found these eyewitnesses to these events who are now talking about it, ministering the word. He, he went and sought them out. He, he found some shepherds who are now old in Bethlehem and said, tell me about that faithful night when that baby was born he he went and found june and james the half brothers of jesus and said listen i've heard that jesus never sinned you grew up with him right you tell me Right? He found Mary and said, come on, Mary, a virgin? Really? Is that really how it, w- how it went? How was it like when God sent his angel and appeared to you when you're 14 years old and said, you're going to be the mother of the son of God? Right? What was that like? And he, he went to these eyewitnesses and he spoke to them. You were healed, I heard. You were raised from the dead. Is there anyone who can corroborate that? And he did this incredible going from town to town investigation, speaking to eyewitnesses. One pastor explains him this way. You can think of Luke as part crime scene investigator, part detective, part investigative reporter, part Indiana Jones, right? And so he is just searching all over this place trying to find these people and accumulate these truths, which tells us, Once again, that Christianity is based upon history, right? Christianity is not simply based upon philosophy, teaching, moral code, some kind of a system of ethics. Christianity is based upon factual historical events. Did this man Jesus walk this earth? Did he die on the cross? And did he was he raised from the dead? That's the foundation of it. And so Luke wants to investigate this. If it didn't happen, we should go home. Like if they find Jesus' body in the grave somewhere, I'm getting a new job because this is a lie. It is based upon historical event, unlike any other religion in this world. And Luke is searching for that history. But you also notice the importance of persuasion. That faith in Christ is not some arbitrary personal feeling. It's not some subjective experience, not some tingling you get down your spine. There are reasons to believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit certainly works in our hearts to grant us our faith. But He doesn't replace the evidence. Luke didn't just sit down and pray to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, will you reveal to Theophilus that the things he heard was true? He wrote 52 chapters. This is not a blind leap in faith. We have reason to believe. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, To the apostles Christ presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs. And he wanted to give them evidence reason for them to believe Christ was concerned with evidence this is what Luke is giving us he's trying to persuade Theophilus I hope you find this persuasive all of us do in fact we also see that you can trust the Bible this is what Luke is saying I'm writing you a trustworthy account and I know in our day and it seems increasingly so people say I don't believe the Bible I just don't believe it I don't think it's true and sometimes I find that frustrating I don't know if you heard people say that if someone ever says, I don't believe the Bible, just, just ask them why. And watch them search for a reason. Nine out of ten don't know why. They just don't believe it because maybe some college professor said something, right, that, that was critical of Christianity and everybody laughed and he sounded smart at that time. And so we just tossed aside our faith. We said, it can't be true. Well, I wonder if that college professor actually spoke to Mary, I wonder if, if, he, if he actually talked to, to Peter or went to Nazareth or Galilee. We have this idea that Christianity is for the naive and simple and once you become more educated and intelligent. Well, then you kind of move beyond Christianity. I would just like to suggest to you that Luke is probably a lot smarter than you. He's probably smarter than your college professor as well. Certainly smarter than me. And he's not predisposed to believe. And it's being funded by a Roman government official. If he gets it wrong, is in big trouble. And he is looking for truth. And that truth leads him to Christ. He desires that Theophilus and anyone else will be assured of this truth. How firm a foundation. ye saints, the Lord is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. And so we have this beautiful historical account. But quickly, there are three other places in which Luke is mentioned in the Bible. Three places that tell us a little bit about this man, which will help us understand his book. We know that Luke, for instance, is a doctor. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 4, and verse 14, Paul writing, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke traveled with Paul. He was most likely Paul's personal doctor, which is comes in handy when you are frequently whipped and stoned and beaten. It's good to have a doctor around. And Luke, in fact, Paul calls him my beloved doctor. And I trust he was beloved because he was very helpful. But I think he's probably beloved by another reason. I think Luke is a lover of people. I think he cares for people. And we see this in his gospel. In fact, Luke won't even mention his name in his gospel. Nor in the book of Acts. I mean, it's so unlike us. We are constantly trying to evaluate how many people are following us on, on this computer program or how many likes I have. And Luke doesn't care about that. He cares about people. And in fact, he is a man of incredible humility. He, he, though he doesn't name himself, he seems to name everybody else. He loves giving us names. We Only from Luke do we learn about Zachariah and Elizabeth or Anna and Simeon, Zacchaeus or Joanna. Matthew's going to focus on the kingdom of God. Luke's going to stress the people that make up the kingdom of God because he desperately loves them. And according to Luke, the people that make up the kingdom of God are not the powerful and not the religious. They're the downtrodden, the humble, the outcast, the disregarded. I don't know if you like babies, like kids. You're going to love Luke. His Luke alone will tell us about the infancy of John and Jesus. And, and he will tell us the only story of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. He will mention this man's only daughter and this woman's only son. Only Luke will do this. Maybe you're here and you're a woman. That's about half of us. You're going to love Luke. Luke is constantly highlighting women, elevating women. He mentions 13 women that are omitted in every other Gospel. We would only know about Mary and Martha, for instance, through Luke. One college professor to describe Luke's Gospel as the ladies' home journal of the Bible. Jesus has these close friendships with women. We see women supporting Him. He has women who are actually funding His ministry. We see in Luke chapter 8, He has these, these sisters that are constantly around Him. And maybe you're a widow. Well, if you are, you will love Luke. Because Luke focuses on widows. Anna in the temple is told to us about Luke. He reminds us of the Zarephath widow of Sidon. We hear about the resurrection of the widow's only son. Only Luke will tell us about the widow's offering. Maybe you're poor. Well, you're going to love Luke because Luke is often speaking about the poor. Matthew shows us magi bringing kingly gifts to Jesus. Luke will give us shepherds bringing their praise. Luke shows us that Jesus was born into a poor family in Luke chapter 2. He will emphasize Jesus' ministry to the poor. Only Luke will tell us in chapter 14, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame. He will preach the gospel to the poor. Go tell John what you have heard and seen. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. It's amazing to me that this book, which is funded by a very wealthy man, nevertheless has constant warnings about wealth. Luke will focus on the dangers of money more than any other gospel as he warns of the of, of the rich fool and the unjust steward and the rich man and the beggar Lazarus and the rich young ruler are all only found in Luke. He focuses on the outcasts and the disregarded. If you feel disregarded, listen, you're going to love Luke because that's who he's going to focus on. Jesus is not this haughty ruler type. He is a common man's Messiah, a servant leader who came to love people that the religious establishment had cast aside and so it begins luke tells us that jesus was born in a stable if it was not for luke we would never be introduced to a repentant thief on the cross if it was not for luke we would never hear the story of a prodigal son returning to his father in fact in chapter 7 and verse 34 it is said of jesus only in luke look at him a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners Luke tells us who Jesus befriended. Tax collectors and sinners. In fact, are you short? You're going to love Luke. Are are you? Do you like to climb trees? Well, you'll love Luke. Because he is the only guy who's going to tell us about this mafia boss, Zacchaeus, who climbs a sycamore tree in order to find salvation in Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us in Luke 15 and verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you like to eat? You will love Luke. Jesus is constantly in this book seen at table, breaking bread, sharing laughter and sorrow and joy with people of disrepute, with the outcast, the disregarded. In fact, I think it's at the table where you really get to know someone. When they come off the stage, when they leave the crowds, and they actually sit there in your living room or your, your dining room and, and break bread with you, then you get to know their heart, don't you? That's what we're going to see about Jesus. We're going to hear the heart of Jesus as He breaks bread with people. You see, Luke is this doctor who sees this, this, this tender, saving compassion for the disre- disregarded, the weak, and the powerless. This is l- what Luke is going to focus on. With Another place where we see Luke's name mentioned is in the context of missions. We see that Luke is not only a doctor and a historian, he's also a missionary. For Paul writes in Philemon, verse 23, And Papyrus sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And so Luke evidently is traveling with Paul. He's a fellow missionary with Paul. We know that Luke met Paul... On Paul's second missionary journey, when he traveled to the city in Troas, which is in modern day Turkey. And from that point on, Luke would travel with Paul as a missionary, side by side, serving for the cause of the gospel. We know this because Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he begins to describe Paul's ministry. And he would say, well, he did this, and he did that, and he went over here, and they were over there, and they traveled here. And we get to Acts 16, verse 10, and Luke changes the pronoun. In Acts 16, verse 10, he writes, when Paul had seen the vision, that's the vision of the Macedonian man calling Paul to Europe, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. And now we have Luke joining Paul as they head over into Europe. We're not sure how he came to know Paul, but F.B. Meyer speculates this way. The rugged terrain and high plateaus through which the missionary party traveled on their way to Troas required some sort of medical attention once they arrived. When Timothy went and searched for a doctor, he found Luke. It is not too much to believe that the impact of Paul's personality and thrilling quality of his gospel message brought the physician to Christ. And it wasn't long before he heard of Paul's intentions to continue on in his journey. He knew his friend would most certainly be taxed to the limit. The inviting frontiers of Europe were both thrilling and menacing. The more Dr. Luke considered these frightening possibilities, the more insistent became a whisper within his soul. Could there be a place for a doctor in that brave little group of Christian warriors? Could he visit the sick and the aged in the churches while his companions stood in the synagogues to proclaim the master's message? We have no way of knowing how long these questions troubled the physician. We only know that when Paul and his companions walked to the dock to board their ship, they were thrilled to see that doctor, bag in hand, hurrying to join their party. And it's from that time on in Troas that Luke would almost never leave Paul's side, I don't know if you love missions. If you do, you're going to love the Gospel of Luke. Because he is constantly showing that Jesus is not simply here for the Jewish people, but for the nations. This will be a theme in Luke's Gospel. He's here for the world. And so the angels only in Luke will proclaim, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Only Luke will tell us about Simeon who declared Jesus to be a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. It's only in Luke that John the Baptist will say all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We'll see that Jesus begins his ministry in Nazareth where he reminds his hometown that God cared for the Gentile um, leper Naaman. It will be Luke who will highlight the Samaritans who Jesus hated, or excuse me, the Jews hated, Jesus loved. It's only in Luke that we'll hear the parable of the good Samaritan. Only in Luke we'll hear about the the Samaritan leper who returned to give thanks and praise to Jesus. In fact, my daughter's name is Samaria because of what I've discovered about God's love for people like Samaria, uh, Samaritans through the Gospel of Luke. This incredible heart for the nations, for those cast aside. See, the kingdom of God, according to the Gospel of Luke, is not about geography it's about loyalty to a king and a king's love for the nations and in this gospel you're going to see constant offerings of salvation for instance in chapter 13 jesus says people will come from the east and the west from the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of god the gospel will close in chapter 24 saying repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to the nations In fact, the book not only celebrates that Jesus has come for the nations, but it celebrates the joy that that salvation brings. I don't know. Do you like joy? Well, you're going to love Luke. No book in the Bible mentions the word rejoice more than the Gospel of Luke. Joy is everywhere. It's up in a tree with Zacchaeus. It's on earth when people find a sheep. It's up in heaven when a lost sinner is found. Gospel begins with rejoicing. It ends with rejoicing. The very last words of this Gospel, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. In fact, sometimes that joy is manifest in singing. Do you like singing? You'll love the Gospel of Luke. For it is only in Luke's Gospel that we have Mary's Magnificent, Zachariah's Benedictus, Simeon's Dimittis, and the angel's Gloria. The common people constantly responding to Jesus with praise, Chapter 2 and verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they have heard and seen. The paralytic who was healed immediately rose up and went home glorifying God. The leper who returned when he saw that he was healed turned back praising God with a loud voice. The blind beggar who was given sight followed him glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. You see, this is a missionary gospel. It is a gospel for sinners from among the nations to find joy and praise in salvation. Well, the last place we see about Luke's name is we learn that Luke is a disciple of Jesus Christ, which is perhaps most important. Paul will write in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 10, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. This would be the last book that Paul would ever write. Paul's in prison. He knows, according to this book, that he soon will be executed. And it seems at this time, at this hour of greatest need, everyone leaves him, deserts him. Everyone except Luke. Luke stays with him. And great risk to himself, as we considered last week. Caring for him, bringing him food there in that prison, ministering to his needs, praying with him. Why did Luke say? Well, he's a disciple of Christ. He knows the cost. In fact, he'll tell us about the cost, in his gospel, in the travel narratives, which are largely unique to Luke, he's going to prepare his disciples for his departure. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, Jesus will say. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, he will tell us in Luke. The church tradition is that Luke l- lived till he was 84 years old, ripe old age. But he never had a child, never took a wife. Now, do you think Luke could have found a wife if he wanted one? I mean, I, I imagine you say, I, "I don't know." Have you read the Bible? I have a couple books in there. Right? By the way, did I mention I'm a doctor? Right? I, I think he could have found a wife, but he forego that, forwent that. No children, no wife. This great, incredible blessing. I think it's because of the life that Christ had called him to—to to travel with Paul, to bear that sacrifice to bring whatever life that brought upon him, no matter the cost. People say, you need to achieve your potential. Luke says, I need to follow my Savior. He was a disciple of our Lord. One commentator writes, no writer has emphasized more clearly than Luke the wideness in God's mercy. Equally, nobody has expressed more stridently the claims of Jesus. Intending, Intending disciples are warned that they must count the cost deny themselves, and follow Jesus daily. God's grace is not cheap grace. Sinners must be prepared. Maybe you need to be challenged in your faith. Some here certainly do. Well, you're going to love Luke. He's going to push you. Christ is going to speak to you of what it means to be his disciple. And part of being his disciple is becoming a person of prayer. If you love to pray, you're going to love Luke. We see disciples being taught to pray, but more importantly, we see Jesus praying. In fact, there are nine events, maybe you could call them crises, in Jesus' life in which Jesus responds in prayer. Seven of them are unique to Luke. We see Jesus constantly on his knees in prayer. Of course, we also need, if we're a disciple of Jesus, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you like the Holy Spirit. The answer should be yes. You're going to love Luke. Sometimes it's called the gospel of the Holy Spirit, for He is mentioned more than any other gospel. In fact, we even see Jesus' dependence on the Holy Spirit. According to Luke, He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, even preaches through the Holy Spirit. And we not only see that in Jesus, we also see Elizabeth, John, Zachariah, all filled with the Holy Spirit, and Mary and Simeon as well. You see, this book is this unwavering commitment to an accurate recounting of Jesus coupled with this devotion for outcasts and this commitment to the worldwide advance of God's kingdom and His willingness to sacrifice everything for it. It is a feast. And our chef has gone to great effort to prepare every detail. Sometimes I think we follow Jesus and we're just living on snacks. Maybe a couple minutes in the Bible here, a couple minutes there. We read little devotions with half a verse and then a paragraph with someone else telling you what it means. And we don't commune with God. We don't spend time with Him. And I just simply today want to whet your appetite for this incredible gift that God has given to us. This Gospel of Luke. Luke, the disciple, will help you to become willing to sacrifice in your pursuit of Christ. Luke, the missionary, will move you to labor for God's kingdom. Luke, the physician, will help you to love people. And Luke, the historian, will make you certain about it all. That's why he's writing. You look back there in verse 3. As he says, most excellent Theophilus, I'm writing this that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I mentioned we don't know who Theophilus is. We do know what his name means, though. It means beloved of God or lover of God. It almost seems like it's a name that you could use for anyone who follows God, who loves him. In fact, Ambrose, the fourth century church father, said so the gospel was written to Theophilus, that is, to whom, to him whom God loves. If you love God, it was written to you. You see, you're Theophilus. And I'm a Theophilus. A lover of God in this Gospel is given to us because we're loved by Him. And how do we know we're loved by Him? Well, chiefly through His work on the cross for us. The Bible says that God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves me not because of the circumstance of my day or even the quality of my life, but because Christ, His Son, has died for my sin. And that's worth celebrating, isn't it? That's worth remembering. And so why don't we turn our, uh, uh, now and, and think about those truths as we end our time, the work of Christ on the cross for us. I do want to invite you to this meal, this supper table. But I will tell you that this is a meal only for Christians. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. We would ask that you would simply just allow the plate to pass by. You just hand that off to the person next to you. And that this will be a meal for Christians to celebrate the work of Christ. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, as is our custom, because we're instructed by God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to give you a moment to just silently prepare, pray to God and prepare your heart for the Lord's Supper. For The Bible says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty uh, concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so please, we'll let, let us spend a moment in silent reflection and prayer as we prepare ourselves for this meal. Pray with me.